My name is Jacob, and I'm the preaching minister here. And yes, this is a great big water jug. And yes, I am handcuffed to it. And I will remain handcuffed to it like I've been most of the rest of this morning. It will make sense later. It's a sermon illustration, you see. We are in a series right now on forgiveness. It's called Forgiven Forgiver, and that's what we are as followers of Christ. We've been forgiven. We therefore go out and forgive. But sometimes we don't always get it right, and maybe we don't fully understand what it is. So that's kind of what this series is about. That's what we're going to be spending our time in this morning. Uh, I want to begin today with a, an illustration from one of my favorite TV shows of all time, uh, the classic television show Little House on the Prairie. And in this scene, I'm going to show you a clip here in just a minute, and there's this couple that live in town called Nels and Harriet Olson. They run Olson's mercantile, and they're the wealthy family in town. Their kids are, are little punks. Uh, but Nels and Harriet get into a fight in this episode, and it doesn't reconcile itself. They, they, you know, the whole town finds out about it. Everybody's trying to help them get to apologize and forgive each other for what happened. It's a small town, and so everybody knows what's going on. Nels moves out, and he starts living in a hotel. Well, where this scene that you're going to watch today picks up, they find themselves in church together. And if you've ever been in the awkward situation where you haven't yet reconciled with your spouse, but there you are sitting together in church, more than just a little bit awkward. So, uh, Joseph and Kristen, go ahead and show us this clip, and we'll see what we can learn from it. Now, I'm going to ask both of you to take an aisle seat, please. There's nothing to worry about. I'll stay between you. <laughs> now, isn't that better? I'd like to thank both of you for honoring my note and remaining after services as I ask. As a servant of God and your spiritual advisor, I felt it was my duty to do everything within my power to restore happiness to your home. You agree? Mm -hmm. Now what I'm going to ask you to do is to think carefully about what you had and what you stand to lose. Now you've both had more than a dozen good years of marriage. You have a home, business, in a highly respected place in the community. And I know you have two children that you love very much. God wants you to love each other, to cherish each other, to honor and to honor each other. Now you promised him you would on your wedding day, remember? I'm going to ask you both to rise. Now face each other. Reach out to each other. Clasp each other's hands. Now the one who stands before each of you is the same one that you promised to take for better, for worse. Think on that a moment. 
disgraced me before the whole town, and I want nothing less than a public apology. I disgraced you. Now, please. You nagging, petty woman. Children, you disgraced me. Oh, there you go again, calling me by those ridiculous I'm names. I'm just telling Even you the truth. Shirts. There isn't another you man alive who put up with your constant picking and nagging day and night. Please, there must be forgiveness. Forgiveness? Don't talk to me about forgiveness until you've lived with a woman like that. Tricky. <laughs> this clip raises a great question when it comes to forgiveness, and that is the question of who goes first. In a situation where everybody feels like they've been wronged, who goes first? Another good question is, can I, or even should I, forgive the person who hasn't owned up to the damage that they have done? In this example from Little House on the Prairie, Harriet Olson was not ready to forgive her husband because he hadn't apologized or made restitution for his wrongs. And her husband Nels was, wasn't ready to forgive his wife because she hadn't changed her tune. She hadn't changed at all. She hadn't really learned her lesson. If you've ever watched this show before, you know that Harriet is a bit of a nightmare. And uh, <laughs> you might even weigh in on this fictional quarrel that they have. And you might say, no, Nels, don't do it. Don't forgive her. You're just going to reward her bad behavior by forgiving her. You need to stand your ground. You might say that to Nels. But this is sometimes the same advice that we give to one another and that we even give to ourselves. We come up with reasons to hold our ground, to hold on to our grudges, to be stubborn, but we're reminded that the way of Christ is to forgive how many times? Seventy times seven, and we hear Ephesians telling us, don't let the sun go down on your anger because that gives the devil a foothold in relationships and in reconciliation, and we know that we're supposed to forgive as we have been forgiven, and sometimes we're willing to do this, but sometimes, even when you're standing right in front of Reverend Alden, we refuse to do it. Don't talk to me about forgiveness until you've lived with a woman like that. And we say to ourselves, I'm justified in my unforgiveness. So we want to ask this morning, can we forgive when we've been greatly wronged? And who goes first? Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you wanting to learn how to be forgiven forgivers. We ask that you open up our hearts and our minds to really understand what forgiveness is, what it looks like, what you would desire for us in our lives. As we begin this morning, I want to lift up any of the Nels and Harriet Olsons in our congregation. It uh, seems like we shouldn't be fighting with the people that we worship alongside, but a lot of times that seeps in and that causes divisions in our relationships. So I just want to pray in the name of Jesus that you'll drive those out that you'll bring reconciliation, that you will teach us to forgive quickly uh, and lovingly. And I want to pray for anybody who hears this message this morning and has a particular person in mind that they are in a conflict with. And I pray for peace. And I pray for reconciliation. And I pray in all things, your kingdom will come on this earth and your will be done just as it's done perfectly in heaven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I thought this morning we would look at a story from Genesis chapter 50. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis 50. 
Genesis is the first book in the whole Bible, and 50 is the last chapter in all of Genesis. So go to the front of the Bible and go to Genesis 50, and we're going to see uh, an example from the life of Joseph, where Joseph is faced with a decision of whether or not to forgive some pretty major harms that were committed against him by people in his family. You might know this story already, but in order to understand this section of Scripture that we're going to look at, it probably will do us well to recap the story of Joseph. Now, you might remember that Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob had a lot of sons. You may know this from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Jacob, Jacob and sons. That's a song. I didn't just make that up. Uh, He has all these sons, but there's one that is his favorite, and he shows favoritism too. And Joseph doesn't play it smart. If you were the favorite among a lot of older and stronger brothers, you'd probably fly under the radar and try to keep that on the down low. But Joseph does no such thing. He says things like, hey, you guys, you know how I'm the favorite and everything? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we know that. He's like, okay, so you know how, like, dad loves me more than he loves you guys? And you know how he gave me this special coat and you guys didn't get a coat? I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. But this is what Joseph does with his brothers. He almost provokes them. He comes to them and he says, hey, well, anyway, so you know how I'm the favorite, right? Well, I've been having these dreams lately, and they're the weirdest things. So in my dreams, you guys are all bowing down, and you're worshiping me, and isn't that funny? And his brothers did not think that that was funny, not even in the least. Instead, they made a plan to kill him. They decided, wait, 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 let's not kill him. It would be more lucrative if we sold him as a slave, and that's exactly what they did. They sell Joseph into slavery, then they go back, and they tell the father, oh, he got eaten by a wild animal, so he's dead. These guys are bad apples. So here's what happens to Joseph. He gets sold to a rich man named Potiphar. And Joseph does well in the house of Potiphar as a slave, and he's made in charge of all the slaves and all of the household. Potiphar trusts Joseph completely. Well, Potiphar's wife takes shine to Joseph, and she, when Potiphar is away one day, she starts to seduce him. She comes on to him, and Joseph says, whoa, 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 I can't go along with this because I want to honor God, and I want to honor Potiphar, my master, so this can't happen. And so Joseph runs away, and this is kind of a good, not the point of our lesson here, but this is a good side note, maybe a learning moment for us gentlemen in the room. If a woman ever comes on to you and she is not your wife, you should run away. Amen? Amen. Okay, we're all agree on that. I could say more about that, but back to the story of Joseph. Uh, Potiphar's wife doesn't like that, and she goes and tells Potiphar, he tried to seduce me, and he attacked me. So Potiphar goes, I can't have that, and he throws Joseph in prison. Sold into slavery by his brothers, works his way up to the top of the household of Potiphar. Now he's back in prison. One thing you need to know about Joseph is that God gave him this ability to understand and interpret dreams. So while Joseph is in prison, he meets someone who eventually goes on to work for the Pharaoh of Egypt. And when uh, the Pharaoh starts having these dreams that he can't understand, this friend of Joseph says, oh, I know this guy who knows how to interpret dreams, so let's bring him in. And that's exactly what Joseph does. He tells Pharaoh, all right, so here's what your dreams mean. We're going to have seven years of great harvests, and we're going to have plenty, but then after that, we're going to have seven years of bad harvests. There's going to be this big famine in the land. So what we should do is stock up and store up uh, during the years of plenty, and then we'll survive the famine. Pharaoh is impressed, and so now he makes Joseph in charge of all 
Egypt. He's this big governor, and he's in charge of the food distribution. It's like, wow, slave. Now he's in charge. But now he's in prison again. But now he's in charge. He's got quite uh, a crazy, interesting life. So the famine, sure enough, seven years of plenty, and then starts the famine after that. The famine reaches the land where Joseph's brothers live with their father. Remember the bad apples from the beginning of the story. So the father says, we're going to starve. We need you guys to go to Egypt where they've been storing up food, and we need you to buy some food there. So they do. They go to the palace that Joseph is in charge of to ask for food. This is a really cool story because there's this, this intrigue and there's things going on that, are, that make, just make it a really cool story. I tell the whole thing, but we don't have time. But what basically happens is Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him because he looks like an Egyptian. And after all, they thought, well, he's a slave somewhere or he's probably dead, but they don't really care. So now they come asking him for help, and he goes, oh, this will be interesting. And he has a little bit of fun with them, but uh, ultimately he wants to know where his brother is. He wants to know how his father is doing. And so he asks them, hey, we need you guys to bring your father to the palace. And they go, oh, no, he's old. He couldn't make the journey. And then finally uh, Joseph reveals himself to them. He says, it's me. I'm your brother Joseph, the one that you sold into slavery. And they're surprised, and Jacob, their father, shows up, and he's delighted. And Joseph invites his whole family to move closer to Egypt so that he can provide for them through the famine. And it's interesting because Joseph doesn't seem to be bitter about their human trafficking efforts or their declaration to, to the father that their favorite son is dead. Joseph doesn't really retaliate. He doesn't punish his brothers. Joseph is able to see that God was at work the whole time that God even used Joseph's brother's misdeeds to bring about salvation for this whole nation of people that would have starved if Joseph hadn't been there to help them through the famine. Okay, so then after a while, Jacob dies, and this is where we pick up our scripture this morning. His brothers are concerned. They thought, oh, maybe he was just showing us mercy for the sake of our father. Now that our father's dead, Joseph might come after us because we're so rotten to him. This is what we read in Genesis 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers and the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. So now, please forgive the sins of the servants of, God, of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came, threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. It's kind of a nice ending, right? Initially, you hear what ended up working out between Joseph and his brothers, and you think, oh, this is great. The brothers asked for forgiveness. You know, at the beginning of the story, they made Joseph a slave, and now they're bowing down before him, just like in his dream, and they're saying, we are your slaves. So everything kind of worked out, right? This is, a, this is a happy ending. Maybe at first glance, it seems that way, but as you sit and think about this story, you realize some things like, did Jacob really tell them to say, all I want before I die is for you to forgive your brothers? 
Or did they make that up? Are they just trying to cover their butts here? It seems like they're asking for forgiveness, but they don't really actually ask for forgiveness. They're just trying to think of themselves. The story begins with them deceiving somebody to get what they want. And now in the end of the story, they're deceiving somebody to get what they want. Like they haven't learned anything. They haven't changed. They aren't better. It doesn't seem to me, if I'm the judge of this situation, that they deserve forgiveness at all. But the good news for them is that their brother has a big view of God. And what Joseph says here is, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And he tells them, don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of you. He doesn't wait for his brothers to change. He goes first. And going first when it comes to forgiving somebody turns out to be a really healthy thing. There's this psychologist named Henry Cloud, and he says that when you hold on to a past wrong or a hurt or a person, then you remain connected to them. You are kind of chaining yourself to that wrong that was done or that hurt that you're experiencing. You're, you're choosing to let that person or that thing continue to have a major role in your life. When you take initiative and you forgive, then you are leaving the hurts in the past and you are moving forward an action step that you're taking. Now at this point, I need to make a disclaimer because I don't want us to misunderstand forgiveness. Forgiving is not denying that something bad happened to you. I'm not advising anybody to do that, to pretend that the hurt that was done didn't hurt or to pretend that the wrong that was done wasn't actually wrong. And I don't even think the Bible is saying that like, even though something was intended for wrong, God says that that was okay because he formed good out of it. That's not what we're saying here. In fact, you actually need to acknowledge pain and hurt in your life or else you're not going to be able to move forward. Forgiving someone doesn't even necessarily mean that you automatically trust that person again. You may actually need to set up some healthy, healthy boundaries in your life with those people who have wronged you. That's the disclaimer part. Hear me say that. But forgiveness is about turning the vengeance that you feel and the hurt that you're attached to over to God and saying like Joseph did, God can deal with this better than I can. God is a God who can redeem even the evil things that happen in our lives. God is bigger than evil. God is bigger than evil people. God is bigger than evil intentions, even. The Greek word for forgiveness means to release sometimes translated as canceling, dismissing, or divorcing. It's about severing a tie. It's a term of separating yourself from someone else or from something that happened. Last week, as we're talking about this series, I offered you uh, a key, a little gold key that says uh, FF on it. That FF stands for forgiven forgiver. Joseph, I think we have a... Joseph, Joseph. I got, a, I got a picture of the key up there. Go ahead and show us that. There it is. Uh, these are in the back of the room. If you didn't get one last week, feel free to grab one on your way out. This is a reminder of you that we've been released from our sins by Jesus and that we are called to release others from their indebtedness to us. But that's not the only thing that it does. Forgiveness not only releases them from your hurt and anger, it also releases you from it as well. And that's an important component that we don't want to miss. Forgiving releases you from having to carry something around with you that's a burden to you. 
And whether you want to interact with it after you're done with it, that's a different story. That's kind of up to you and maybe a best practices decision. But I locked myself to this water jug that is very heavy and it's very cumbersome and it's very painful and it's very awkward. And I didn't think before I did it uh, that I usually go to the bathroom between class and <laughs> my sermon time, but here we are. And I'll tell you, I don't want to be locked, to be chained, to be associated with this water jug anymore. I want it to stop right now. I gave the key to Justin, so I want to invite Justin to come up and unlock these handcuffs because they are the worst. <laughs> no, it's not the FF key. That unlocks forgiveness. I need you to get the police handcuffs key. This is not what we discussed. <laughs> oh, he's got it. Yes. Yes, this is good news. Okay. I need you to release me from this. Oh, I hope this works. Otherwise, it's going to be a really long week. Yes. Oh, okay. Good. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, let's just move this way over here. If you've ever seen a TV show where someone gets handcuffs taken off, you'll notice they always like rub their wrists, and now I know why. It, it, re yeah, it really hurts. This is no good. So forgiveness is kind of like a key. This is an image that we've been using in this series, and it releases the people from the debtor's prisons that you lock them up in, um, but it also releases you from not having to carry a burden that you don't want in your life anymore. In this story of Joseph with his brothers, he could have taken a line from Nels Olsen, and he could have said, forgiveness? Don't you talk to me about forgiveness until you've dealt with brothers like that. But he would have just kept himself attached to the hurt that he'd experienced. He would have had to live with that every day. Instead, Joseph realized that he wanted to be free from that. He realized that God is bigger than that. Uh, he realized that God is always doing the work of redemption. And we know this as followers of Jesus. I think the best example of God constantly being at work and bringing out redemption in the world around us is Jesus. And we know that Jesus went first. Jesus didn't wait for all the people of the world to start treating each other right. He didn't wait for us to say the magic words or really, really show that we really, really want his forgiveness really, really bad. But Romans 5.8 reminds us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He went to the cross with forgiveness and love in his heart so that we can be forgiven, so that his enemies could become his family. And it's not a selective forgiveness. It's not like Jesus said, I'm going to die for the sins of just the Israelites or just the priests in the temple or just the do-gooders or just the churchgoers or just the nice folks. Jesus decided I'm going to die for everyone. Jesus stormed the gates of hell. He kicked open the doors of death, and he stole the key that sets us free. And he says, here you go. I'm giving it to you. And it's up to us what we're going to do with it. And a lot of people will look at that gift, and they'll say, I don't need it. I don't want it. I don't want to release people from the, the, the wrongs that they did for me. I'm going to hold on to it just a little bit longer. A lot of people will reject 
Jesus' divinity. They'll reject the fact that there is, even is a key in the first place. But Jesus still died for those people. Jesus went first. So we should ask ourselves, in our lives, who is going to go first? Is it me, or is it always going to be everyone else? We're going to wait until things are right, wait till we get the perfect apology, wait until someone's learned their lesson, or are we going to release ourselves from the burden that can cause us a lot of pain and damage? Hold on to something that's just going to make our life miserable. On September 6th, 2018, a young man named Botham John was shot to death in his home. Joseph, I think I have a picture of uh, Botham up there. Here he is. He's, uh, he was 26 years old when he died. He's a graduate of Harding University, so this was kind of a, this was a national news story, but also hit close to home for a lot of people in the Churches of Christ because they knew him as a Harding student, as a worship leader for the chapel services. He was an accountant. He, he led worship at the Dallas West Church of Christ in Dallas, Texas. It was a horrible tragedy. Shot to death in his own home. What happened? Why did this have to happen? Well, an off-duty police officer named Amber Geiger came home from work one day. She walked into her apartment and she saw a strange man. And she was afraid. And she feared for her life. So she did what she was trained to do. She drew her sidearm and she shot and she killed him. But what happened was that it was all just a big mistake. She thought that she entered her apartment, but she accidentally entered his apartment instead. She went through the wrong door, and both of them died. And she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And at her sentencing, Botham's brother, Brant, had the opportunity to deliver a message to her. I'm hoping as you hear his message that he delivered to her, you'll pick up on some of the things that we've been talking about in this series. Joseph and Kristen, go ahead and... Show us that uh, clip. I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you've or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I just... I hope you go to God with all what, all the guilt, all the things, the bad things you may have done in the past. Each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you, and. I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did but i see i i personally want the best for you and i i wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone but 
I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please. Yes. His forgiveness points to a God who's bigger than the wrongs that were done. Uh, it points to a God who can redeem anything. Here's the concern that I have. With examples like Joseph forgiving his brothers and uh, someone whose family member was shot showing forgiveness uh, to the person that shot him, killed him, uh, these, these are extreme examples. You may not be able to relate to these. And I don't want to communicate that you know, this, this is about the big forgiveness. I think it applies to the big forgiveness as well. But maybe the forgiveness in your life that needs to happen uh, is not this kind of example. Maybe it's more like the Nels and Harriet Olson example. But I think in all of these cases, someone has to go first. Someone has to say forgiveness is important. And I'm going to take this step to do it. So I want to end by giving you a challenge to ask yourself the question, who do I need to forgive? But uh, again, I'm concerned that if you ask yourself this question, you might go, mm, no one. I'm good. I don't have any enemies. I'm not holding any grudges. I'm fine. Everybody loves me and I love everybody. To push a little bit farther than that, to go a little bit deeper. And so instead of asking yourself, who do I need to forgive, what I want to challenge you to do is ask somebody who knows you well, ask somebody you're close to in your life, who do I need to forgive? They're probably going to know better than you are because it might be that person that you have broken off a relationship, that person that you're always griping about, that person that you don't spend time with anymore. They'll be able to see and say, yeah, what happened with this relationship? And if you really want to be a forgiven forgiver, that's going to be the information that you're going to have to decide what to do with. <coughs> The person, if you, if you seek that out, what you might hear is it's somebody that you work with. It's somebody in your family that you still interact with and are polite with, but there's, there's a hurt and there's a harm and there's a, a divide that's been created. But what you might find out is that it's somebody that you don't even know. If you ask somebody, who do I need to forgive? They might say, it's a celebrity. It's somebody that you yell at your TV about. It might be a political figure. Or it might not even be a person at all. It might be a group 
of people that you have turned your heart against, a group of people that you disagree with and say, well, they're all rotten. I don't want to have anything to do with those people. That may be where the forgiveness needs to start. That may be where you need to go first. So I want, w- want you to challenge you to do that. Ask that question and, and prepare to get an honest answer. And then, what are you going to do about it? This is what you should pray about. Say, Lord, okay, it's been revealed to me that maybe there's some unforgiveness in my life. What am I supposed to do? What does going first look like? And I'll tell you one thing. The answer to that question may not look exactly like it does in the Joseph story. You may not be called to take somebody who's harmed you and to say, you know what, I want you to move closer to me and I'm going to be financially responsible for you. That might not be the healthiest thing. But what I am saying is that as forgiven forgivers, we need to seek this out. We need to go first and we need to practice this more and get better at doing this. I want to close this morning by leading us in a prayer. It's a prayer that I did not write. It's a prayer of David. It comes from Psalm 51. I'm going to read this. Uh, The praise team is going to make their way up here and and prepare to lead us in our closing song. But I want to invite you, as we pray this together, to stand with me. I'm going to lead us in this prayer, and then we're going to uh, sing uh, the final song together with one another. And before I sing this, I want to invite anybody who wants to know more about the forgiveness of Christ. That's something I've experienced in my life. That's what drives a lot of the message up here. Uh, If you haven't experienced that, or if you're in a position where you're like, I don't know if I can be forgiven, I don't know if I can forgive others, then I'd love for you to come and talk to me, because I I love talking about Jesus. Um, So come and find me in the back. But let's pray together. Generous in love, God, give grace. Huge in mercy, wipe out my bad record, Lord. Scrub away my guilt. Soak out my sins in your laundry. I know how bad I've been. My sins are staring me down. You're the one I violated, and you've seen it all. You've seen the full extent of my evil. You have all the facts before you. Whatever you decide about me is fair. I've been out of step with you for a long time, in the wrong since before I was born. What you're after is truth from the inside out. Enter me then. Conceive a new, true life in me. Soak me in your laundry and I'll come out clean. Scrub me and I'll have a snow-white life. Tune me into foot-tapping songs. Set these once-broken bones to dancing. Don't look too close for blemishes. Give me a clean bill of health. God, make a fresh start in me. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. Don't throw me out with the trash, Lord, or fail to breathe holiness in me. Bring me back from gray exile. Put a fresh wind in my sails. Give me a job teaching rebels your ways so the lost can find their way home. Commute my death sentence, God, my salvation, God, and I'll sing anthems of your life-giving ways. Unbutton my lips, dear God. I'll let loose with your praise. Going through the motions doesn't please you. A flawless performance is nothing to you, God. I learned God worship when my pride was shattered. Heart-shattered lives ready for love don't for a moment escape God's notice.